Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. I'm joined by Alexander Meliagru-Hitchens, the author of the book Incitement, Enwar al-Awlaki's Western Jihad. Alexander is a lecturer in terrorism and radicalization at King's College London and research director of the Program on Extremism at George Washington University. He writes regularly for major periodicals on both sides of the Atlantic, including foreign affairs, prospect, and foreign policy. Alexander, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Can you tell us a little bit more about you and how you came to write about this topic? I suppose I've been sort of researching, writing about uh, extremism in the West and, and terrorism in the West for really a, probably coming up to a, just over a decade, so around 2007 or eight, I suppose, when I started seriously looking at it. And jihadism was probably my main interest, or, or at least more widely sort of Islamist activism, and, and then it's more violent uh, iterations in jihadism. Um, and I was particularly interested in, in Islamist activism and recruitment in, in the UK during that time. And I was fairly on top of the networks and uh, the events they were having and that kind of thing, and the, the main sort of individuals involved. And uh, this name kept coming up around that time, Anwar Awlaki, amongst uh, people online, people at meetings. Um, he was clearly the, the name that was um, sort of on most people's lips, uh, the most, you know, very most commonly probably referenced figure for a range of people from, we could say, sort of activist Islamists to, to jihadists. So he was an attractive figure for so many uh, people within this sort of Islamist spectrum. And uh, I just started realizing that I had to get to know a bit more about him and following his work. And so from really 08, 09, um, he became a, a subject of, of interest to me um, just because the amount of times I saw him referenced. And soon after that, um, he was kind of connected. He started becoming connected to a couple of terrorist plots. Um, and so that kind of showed that he was a bit more serious. And uh, I ended up doing my PhD on him after that, from or partly on him from around 2010. Uh, so really, it's it's been it's been over a decade really of of research and interest uh, that uh, 
sort of led to, I suppose, this book finally. You say in the book that this isn't a biography, as you focus on Alaki's development of thought and influence. But to place our discussion in context, could you give a brief entry point into who Alaki was and how he came to be a Muslim cleric in the United States? Sure. And yes, I say in the book pretty early on that a reader shouldn't expect a sort of traditional biography, but rather an intellectual history with some references, of course, to his to his life. And I, I refer readers to uh, Scott Shane's book, Objective Troy, for the kind of uh, more specific bio, uh, bio, uh, biography. Um, so Alaki, um, for, for those who hadn't come across him, really kind of began his career as, a, as an Islamic uh, preacher, uh, lecturer, imam uh, in the United States, uh, sort of in the mid-90s. And, and he was born in America to Yemeni parents spent time in Yemen as well, but but really grew up mostly in the U.S. and certainly his adulthood, um, and was sort of uh, became very popular very quickly because he was able, he was doing a couple of things that weren't being done in, in American Islam at the time. Firstly, he was one of the first really American-born with, you know, American-accented, uh, steeped in, in, the, in the culture of his audience in a way that most preachers at the time, you know, were mostly still migrants, uh, uh, from Middle Eastern, South Asian countries, um, who weren't necessarily able to have that as much of a connection to their to their American audience. So Alaki was a um, who were able to uh, really convey Islam to a, an American audience. And uh, he did that through a number of ways, but he translated, mostly translated histories of Muhammad, mostly referred to as Sirah, and histories of uh, his closest followers, the Sahaba, um, who were essentially his... Um, uh, the first, the first, the kind of, and the best considered to be the best uh, Muslims. Um, and as his fame grew, um, his his work was really was recorded and disseminated very widely on audio tape back then, and then CD. And he got a number of very senior positions in the U.S. Particularly, he got uh, his, the job of imam uh, at the turn of the uh, around the millennium. He got the job of imam at the Dar al Hijra Mosque in Virginia, which is you know one of the most influential mosques in the East Coast and maybe in the country, really. So. He was a very big deal. And really, if you were a young English-speaking Muslim of kind of our generation, so, uh, you know, sort of growing up in the late 80s, 90s, uh, and you were interested in Islam and you didn't speak Arabic, there was a really good chance that it was Alaki's work that you would be coming across and you would know about. So there was by no means a sort of open extremism at the time from him. Um, but as he, as things developed, and we'll get into it, and the book explains really how his his ideology kind of morphed throughout the kind of 2000s and particularly after the, the, the 9-11 uh, and he moved from being a fairly sort of anti-american islamist leaning preacher to a full-on uh, al-qaeda supporting jihadist essentially recruiter uh, and the and so really that's what makes him this unique figure is he went from mainstream islam in america the kind of guy that ev- you know most young american muslims would know about if they were following their religion to sort of in Yemen with Al-Qaeda recruiting. So that, that kind of story is quite unique. And understanding how and why he shifted in the way he did ideologically um, is a big part of, of the book, really. But really, it end, his career ended as a senior recruiter for Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Um, and he was involved with multiple terrorist plots, both in terms of radicalizing people from, from afar via the internet, but also directly plotting and planning attacks with individuals who came to receive training under him, probably most famously 
Umar Farouk Abdul-Muttalib, the infamous uh, underwear bomber who tried to set off a bomb in his underwear flying over, in a jet flying over Detroit. Um, so that, and, and of course, he became such a nuisance in the end that he was pretty much high on the list of targets under the Obama uh, drone program. So after bin Laden's assassination came Al-Laki's. Um, and so it showed really how important a threat he was seen by the end of his of his career, uh, you know, sort of at the end of the last decade. You undertake a detailed examination of Salafi thought, describing it as a spectrum. And there's a great deal of nuance in how you parse out these different aspects of Salafism that can often be lumped into one category. Can you talk about why these distinctions are important to understand? Sure. I mean, really, uh, I'm certainly not a scholar of Islam or even a scholar of Salafism. So a lot of my my sort of general discussion of Salafism is inspired by scholars like Thomas Hegheimer, Hoas Wagemakers, Quentin Victorowitz, uh, and, and, and plenty others, um, where I try to, and, and I will overview that as well, but where I try to uh, sort of contribute is is trying to place Awlaki within this uh, movement or within this this body of thought. And very briefly, I essentially argue that from Awlaki, we what we see is a shift from uh, from one kind of version of Salafism to another. Uh, more specifically, from what we can call activist uh, non-jihadi Salafism, so politically activist Salafism, uh, to uh, global jihadist or, or Salafi jihadism. Um, and I argue that what we can see, we, we see this shift taking place as events change around him. But to go back um, very briefly, Salafism essentially uh, describes a, a movement within Islam that wants to take the, both the belief and uh, practice of the religion back to the time of Muhammad, the founder of the religion, and the three generations that came after him, and the so-called Salaf. Um, and... Uh, really, it's a sort of essentially um, uh, fundamentalist, literalist movement um, that has its roots in various places, most you know, mostly uh, the Arabian Peninsula, Saudi Arabia, um, and very generally, Salafi movements are are divided in three uh, categories, which are themselves can be further divided, and that can be a very long conversation. But very, very briefly, you have what we can call uh, quietest Salafis or scholars, scholarly Salafis, the ones who mostly are connected to the sort of establishment sheikhs in Saudi Arabia, who really focus only on Islamic study, uh, no real political activism. They believe, in fact, that politics and religion should not mix. These things should be separate, that uh, Muslims should respect their leaders no matter pretty much what they do, except for a sort of very small amount of transgressions. Um, on, on the whole, they they try, they preach inward-looking study, personal spiritual improvement, uh, and very strict adherence to rules and uh, uh, rather harsh views of Muslims who they, they see as not practicing Islam properly, and and of course of, of non-Muslims and, and other Muslim sects. Um, but on the whole, they are they are looking to pretty much improve their knowledge, their study of Islam, and, and teach that to others. Uh, and are quite suspicious of political activism. Uh, we then have what we can call uh, activist Salafis who say actually, really, in order to change Islam, in order to change the world in, in, to, in the image that we need it to, we have to be involved in politics and political activism. 
And these are essentially Salafis who were influenced by uh, Islamist ideology generated mostly by the Muslim Brotherhood. And, and what we shouldn't, generally people like to refer to Islamists and Salafis as the same thing. Actually, they're quite different from quite different traditions. But what we see in activist Salafism is, in short, a fusion of Islamist activist ideology and Salafist austere theology. And that combination, I argue, and, and others argue, can have a number of outcomes, some very volatile, others not so much. And so, so the act, a lot of well-known activist Salafi groups, most well-known, the Sahwa in Saudi Arabia, sort of protest group against the regime, particularly after the Saudi kingdom allowed American troops into the Gulf uh, for the first Gulf War to the Arabian Peninsula, uh, the kind of protest movement. Um, but from that activist Salafism, we, we saw branching out towards more violence amongst those who, who accepted really how activist Salafis saw the world, but did not accept that it should be a nonviolent endeavor. And there, you, and so people, even from going back to, you know, big names in the jihadist movement from Abdullah Azam, Osama bin Laden, Ayman al-Zawahiri, you will find that a lot of them were very inspired, uh, particularly by activist Salafism and, and moved towards violence when they kind of decided one way or the other that uh, it was the only effective, legitimate method of, of affecting change. And the book kind of gives an overview of that. And if you want more reading on it, it's all in the, in the notes. And, um, and then it tries to place Al-Laki within that discussion and effectively argues that you can see very early on in his work signs of activist Salafi thought and a reverence for Islamist ideologues like Sayyid Qutb, Abu Maududi, the founder of the Jamaat Islami, the Muslim Brotherhood sister organization in South, South Asia. Um, and you see in Al-Laki, uh, essentially, I argue, a, a vision of the world upon which, you know, uh, your, your reaction is really based on um, how the world changes around you. So with the scholarly Salafis, really, no matter what happens in the geopolitical sphere, it doesn't really impact their views on what they should be doing because uh, they're ignoring it. The activist Salafis, on the other hand, become much more subject to the changes of geopolitics. So as things change, their view on violence may change, right? And in Awlaki's case, once the war on terror started taking off after 9-11 and, and in Afghanistan and Iraq, and domestic policies like the Patriot Act and things like this started becoming enacted, he started shifting his view on violence um, based on these shifts around him in, in politics, as well as on the fact that he had an ideology already that was I could easily move to violence if, if need be. Um, and essentially, that's that's my argument about how he how and why he, he shifted. You see within the book, as you mentioned, that Alaki didn't so much move to radical thought, but there was this evidence of um, that activism early on and the element that changed over time was the increased support for violence. And one of the things I found really interesting in the book, when you talk about these different strands of um, the quietest, the activists and the jihadists, was the community within the United States because Alaki's influence was not just his English language materials, but the frames also that he used to speak to Western Muslims, which was outside of this formal, more, um, I guess, outside of this more formal uh, Muslim community. And some of these diagnostic frames you you speak of that Alaki returns to are this, this idea of a war on Islam, campaigns by the U.S. military, and this also this idea that Muslims were distracted by minor issues rather than focusing on larger threats. Uh, can you talk about Alaki's use of these frames and how um, that 
gained an audience within the United States? Sure. Um, so there's a, there's a one attempt that has been made towards understanding what we can call collective action or sort of the activities of social movements, uh, attempts by uh, social movements to um, change or sort of um, come up against authority and, and, and demand changes upon, upon authority one way or the other. And, and the argument essentially is that one of the ways that social movements get people to join and act on, on its behalf is by constructing a reality uh, for them that they will, that they end up accepting. Um, so a frame, for example, refers to a, a sort of way of interpreting events that a movement is asking you to do. So, for example, uh, if you were to imagine that the movement, the, if we were to imagine uh, the global jihad movement as a social movement, one of their key frames, uh, one of the key frames that actually explains the problem that Muslims are facing, i.e., diagnosis the, the the main issue uh, is that there's a war in Islam taking place right that's a, a standard uh, um, view of the world but that frame then you're asked to view everything through that so any event that takes place that is um, negative to you or to what that, that's perceived perhaps to be negative to your religion you're asked to view it through that reality that so say uh, there's a Muhammad cartoon a cartoon of Muhammad is drawn in Denmark Right, an offensive uh, image of Muhammad is depicted. Uh, the French government bans the hijab, right? Um, or the U.S. government implements a CVE strategy that perhaps uh, has an imbalanced approach to when it comes to Muslims. All those things are you're asked to view through this simplistic frame of, of reference, which says that's all basically part of the conspiracy, part of the war in Islam. Um, so. In, rather than viewing these as separate events that have all sorts of reasons behind them, you know, France banning the hijab, there's a lot of kind of cultural, historical reasons, right? The, the, the satirical depictions of Muhammad, that's the, something else. To bring those all together and ask someone to view them through this one uh, frame is, is kind of the classic reality creation that social movements try to do, right? So in Allahi's case, one of the big frames was, yes, there's a war in Islam, but it's one thing to, to throw that out there. It's another to make people, you know, convinced of it. So how, you can't just ask people to, to view the world through this frame. You have to make it relevant to their experiences. So what Al-Laki needed to do was find examples for Americans that there was a war in Islam taking place that was going to impact them directly. Uh, and that really is something only someone who grew up in America had their finger on the pulse of young Muslim American concerns could possibly do. And the book kind of explains how he was able to take events uh, t happening around his audience and place them all through this frame of direct threat to them. And, and it wasn't just a physical threat, right? It was also an ideological one. To, so he was very keen to pick up on, you know, the emerging conversations about moderate Islam, you know, after 9-11. Um, you know, there was, and it still goes on today, you know, what is moderate Islam? Should we embrace and encourage a so-called moderate Islam to combat jihadism, right? That's a key uh, discussion that anyone who's even sort of looked over at this debate over the last decade or two would have come across, right? Um, Al-Laki kind of takes that debate knowing that it's a key one for his audience and presents that itself as a war on Islam component because he says what this whole moderate Islam discussion and all these Muslims taking part in discussions with the government and the police, this is all an attempt to change Islam, to redefine Islam, ideologically at its core by the secular West 
in order to destroy it from the inside. So to change the fundamental beliefs in jihad and violence that he believes are central to the faith, to change the sort of austere intolerance that he believes, again, uh, is essential to the faith. Uh, these are all be- presented by Al-Laki as, as part of the war in Islam. And so that's a classic frame that he creates to say, um, you know, actually, it's not just bombs dropping in Afghanistan and Iraq. That's the war in Islam. It's these sinister little discussions happening right under your nose at your universities, at your, at your community centers that are part of that war in Islam right on your doorstep, right on your backyard. And therefore, kind of giving it an extra immediacy or urgency, that was key for his to his success, really, as well, both before he became an open jihadist and, and particularly after. And throughout the book, you really talk about this ability to use narrative and storytelling. Additionally, you point out that Alaki wasn't really aligned with a particular scholar or approach. And I found this to be a really interesting insight. Was Alaki operating outside a more established Islamic scholarship? And if so, how was he able to build credentials absent the sponsorship of established clerics? Yeah, that's a very good and important question and and partly helps us understand the Alaki story, both in terms of his popularity and also his his shifts in allegiance and his uh, radicalization. Um, So... Most of the preachers that were operating in it. So again, we have, in order to understand Alaki, you have to understand the context in which he was operating in America in the 90s and, and early 2000s. And, you know, the conservative Islamic movement of which he was a part in the U.S. Uh, was made up of largely classically trained preachers, guys who'd gone to Saudi Arabia and spent years and years training and receiving credentials and qualifications that take a heck of a lot of study and time, uh, you know, on particularly on Hadith, Quran uh, and this kind of things. And studying those, you know, for years and years and years under under some of the most well-known established Salafi scholars in the world, the most. Um, and what that did was it gave them the credentials and the street cred and the ability to ha- gain attention simply because they had these qualifications. But what it may have also done to some extent was constrain what they could do and say, because they were part of that milieu. They were, they were students of these preachers. They were not going to say things that were going to go against what those preachers were saying. And, and it was mostly, you know, it wasn't jihadist stuff. It was, you know, it could have been very intolerant. It could have been, uh, you know, very fundamentalist, literalist, but it wasn't jihadist really. So there was some element of, I suppose, control there. Uh, Al-Laki comes in and he has, from what we can tell from his own, you know, CV that he provides, um, he has, he's had very rudimentary training. Uh, certainly no uh, long-term study uh, under any major preachers in Saudi Arabia. A couple of qualifications by some pretty unknown uh, clerics in Yemen um, and relationships with a variety of different scholars, but but quite uh, not much in terms of the heavy lift intellectually. Um, so what that did was it meant that he could kind of go on and, and say and do what he wanted without having to answer to anyone. So that kind of helps explain how he was able to change his his stance. But it also explains his popularity because it meant he didn't have to stick close to the dry scholarly stuff. So at that time, you know, conservative Islam in America, you know, it required a pretty big commitment intellectually. You had to be reading, you had to be thinking and studying and really um, doing a lot of intellectual work to be 
part of this. And uh, what Alaki did was kind of able, he was able to ditch a lot of that. He doesn't do much of the scholarly stuff. He sticks to the exciting, fun, interesting, light, intellectually lighter stuff, which is what I referred to earlier, uh, Sira, which is essentially histories of Muhammad and his and his immediate followers. Uh, the histories are not the same as the primary texts, as the hadith, which are the recorded sayings of the Prophet, and the Quran, right, the, the word of God as, as presented to, to Muhammad. The Sira is considered a sort of lower as far as its reliability as a source. But um, so it's a much more of a kind of historian um, collecting all the sources and bringing it together into a sort of narrative that um, is seen as actually not very reliable, if not worked alongside with other sources like the Hadith. So um, essentially, Awlaki translates these for the first time into English, right? This stuff had not been translated into English before. And that was a big, big step. Um, and what he did was tell these these stories uh, about Muhammad and his experiences and uh, in English, right, in American idiom um, and very regularly making contemporary references that matched those stories, right? So the juxtaposing those, those times in the early history of Islam, those glory years, really, of Islam, juxtaposing those onto modern day. And even in his early career, he did that to the, for the purposes of kind of bringing Islam more to life to his, for his audience. Uh, and later on, he did it. He did it in order to justify jihadism. And alongside the kind of studies of social movements and the kind of more, uh, um, I suppose, calculating discussions about creating frames of uh, and, and new realities for people to view events through, uh, that's a kind of that that ignores partly the emotional component of joining a social movement or particularly joining an extremist movement. Where is the w- appeal to emotion? Uh, some of these theories, the social science and social movement theories, they, they don't quite um, address that or, or, or account for the emotional component. And, and what, the, what I try to do in the book is say, actually, through the storytelling, Alaki also addresses this issue. He creates, you know, he's making a kind of uh, a contribution to the jihadi culture that is developing um, and that has been discussed by other scholars like Thomas Hegkammer um, by being able to create a shared story and narrative for American and Western Muslims to feel part, much more part of the history of their religion and kind of in a way is able to cast them, those who are participating today in Islamic activism, cast them in the role of those who are continuing the work of these glorious figures from the beginning of the religion. Uh, He's able to kind of place everyone into that category and, and give them and help them create a shared history, shared shared identity. Um, and that appeal uh, to emotion and culture uh, combined with these quite calculated uh, social movement tactics that he used, uh, again, I think helped give us a bigger perspective on his effectiveness as a preacher recruiter. Alaki's kind of populism is so American in the way that it's anti-establishment, it's individualism, it's um, the person kind of uh, asserting himself as a as a self-studied scholar. Um, well, I think you could. There is something to that because very little of his work is written. Right, he's not a scholar in that sense, a published scholar. Um, it's mostly audio, video. Um, it isn't uh, yeah, heavy on the scholarly component. Um, 
So and I, I think that there, yeah, there is something uh, to that. He was able to certainly appeal to your average uh, sort of not very connected to their religion, young American Muslim. Uh, certainly, there's a populist component to it, where you know, essentially, they're saying that we are getting rid of the influence of the sort of establishment religious figures, uh, and we're taking. And in fact, Salafism, at its core, can be sort of uh, seen as having populist, or at least to understand the appeal of pop, uh, of Salafism, uh, you can see populism in there because what Salafism says is cut through all the bullshit and, and go to the texts by yourself. Go to the texts, read them yourself. You figure out what, you know, how to understand your religion without being, without some uh, sort of third, uh, 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 third party in the middle. Um, and so that is eff effectively what, what the populists say, right? If you want to give you more direct access to understanding and power, that's essentially what the, the Salafis are, are, are often doing. Um, it's, it's in a sense a populist movement in that way. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So I want to return to a point you were talking about earlier with Alaki's movement from the Salafi activism to the support for violence. Can you talk about what factors you think caused Alaki to move towards that support for terrorism and you also talk about as he moved to that um, more violent uh, support that there are questions surrounding his involvement with the men who carried out the 9-11 attacks. Yes. Um, so uh, essentially, um, what I, when I the, the book is uh, the analysis of Alaki's work is divided into two chapters. Uh, one, which I kind of describe as this pre-jihadism phase, where I, I analyze. Uh, and, and identify traits in um, his earliest works, and the, the second the second part is is where I um, analyze specifically his jihadist works and show both the, where he departs from his positions, but where he mostly in most cases uh, stays largely consistent. Um, and so, in the early work, what we see is someone, as I mentioned earlier, who's definitely very influenced by key Islamist thinkers, uh, Sayyid Qutb in particular, but at the same time is at least presenting himself as someone who is carrying and, and practicing uh, Salafi theology. So what we are saying is someone who is, is, is to some extent combining these two these two traditions, Salafism and Islamism. What we see as well is a really instinctive anti-Americanism very early on, a view of American culture and its influence abroad and domestically as this sort of really direct 
specific threat to Islam, to all religion, uh, but sp- particularly to Islam, right? He sees it is not this kind of benign uh, spread of, of a culture, but rather a, a deliberate and, and uh, sinister attempt to destroy a, a specifically uh, Islam um, by encouraging Muslims to adopt other cultures, to adopt sort of Western culture, to forget their um, own religion um, and to attract them with uh, sort of, you know, popular entertainment and things like this. Uh, so he's got a very suspicious view um, of American secularism and of American politics abroad. Um, uh, and he sort of has this sort of anti-globalization um, tone to him where he describes kind of how the different, you know, it's the same, there's no difference between, say, setting up a McDonald's in, in a foreign country and, and bombing that country. One way or the other, America is going to be there. Um, either through its capital's presence or through its military presence. So he had this suspicious view of America, and he he saw Islam as as um, really the, a, a, an ideology that presented uh, the the best defense against this the spread of this this the threatening liberal secular culture. Um, so already early on, we're seeing a pretty combative view of the world. A view of Islam as not just a, a faith, but as a system of of, of life and governance that is an alternative to to the Western uh, structures and systems. Um, so that's that's kind of how he's initially already seeing the world and very is simply divided between Muslim and non-Muslim and, and also fairly keen to encourage Muslims to separate themselves from a wider society, create sort of their own um, communities that are cut off. Um, so there's all of that going on. And at the same time, um, as I said, a, a reliance on the works of key Islamist thinkers. Um, so as nine, so, nine eleven happens, and at this point we have an Awlaki whose view of jihad is what we can call a classical, which is supportive of they say the jihad in Afghanistan uh, with under uh, with the mujahideen removing the Soviets, or jihad in Bosnia, or jihad in Chechnya. Sort of the kind of jihads where there was an invasion of Muslim land and there was a call for people to, from all over the world to come and fight that back. Um, he was a supporter of that and certainly jihad in, in, in Israel and Palestine and supportive of Hamas. Um, so that's the al-Laki we had before 9-11. And that's the, the view of jihad that he was supportive of. Then 9-11 happens and he publicly becomes a very popular figure because he's this voice against the attacks. He says these are not Islam. Um, uh, they go against all of our beliefs. He's a, he's a big critic initially of, of 9-11 and Al-Qaeda. Um, but at the same time, he's making moral equivalences, say, uh, between the actions of, of uh, Al-Qaeda and, say, American foreign policy. So that, that kind of thing, which, again, is not, you know, there's plenty of people on the left uh, in, in mainstream politics who have those kind of views. So um, he was able to kind of use that type of politics uh, as well. Um and really, as the American response started taking shape, and that was the military response in Afghanistan and Iraq, um, and its domestic response, um, you know, sort of a harder um, domestic counterterrorism policies, um, much more strict on sort of Muslim charities and things like this, Awlaki started viewing these steps as the next phases in the war on Islam, and he became much more Concerns. So the view of the world he had didn't change, but circumstances started changing where he started viewing the world as much increasingly more dangerous 
to the Ummah, or to the, the worldwide Muslim population, to the point where he decides that actually peaceful activism is not going to stop this. There is a sort of huge you know, storm coming Islam's way. And really, the only option at this point is to adopt uh, much more strident, aggressive global jihadism. So when 9-11 happened, by the way, you know, for most jihadists, it's still a shock. You know, global jihadism, as we understand it today, was announced pretty much on 9-11. We can say maybe in, in East Africa, but uh, with the initial embassy bombings. But really, the announcement was this is what jihad looks like now. It's not in the mountains, uh, you know, fighting Soviets or, or fighting uh, in Bosnia. It's not it's terrorism around the world at any moment against civilians. And that was not most people were not on that page yet. And I would say Olaki was not on that page when it happened. But as things developed over the years, by 2005, he'd adopted that vision of jihad um, as well, um, partly because it, it kind of his his own worldview was open to, to that. Um, and also because, you know, his, he had experiences himself that were negative that helped encourage him that there was really this conspiracy taking place. He was hassled by the FBI for sure. Um, and he was jailed in Yemen for charges that are not entirely clear uh, for about a year as well. So there are things that happened to him that helped push him along. Um, but my main contention is the way he viewed the world really from the start um, made him very vulnerable to moving to extreme violence, you know, as things developed. And you said it's somewhat of a mystery, his contact with the attackers who may have been present in the in the mosque where he preached. Right. So, yeah, one of the kind of enduring mysteries about 9-11 and, and sort of jihadism in the West that, that, you know, maybe one day we'll solve. And I know myself and, and Scott Shane, the author of um, uh, Objective Troy, are, are sort of, you know, hope, hoping for this to one day be fully understood. But yeah, so uh, one of Alaki's first big jobs was as an imam at a, a San Diego mosque uh, before his big job in, in Virginia at Dar al-Hijra. And there, um, two of the 9-11 hijackers were attending his uh, sermons and he was in, in contact with, he had a relationship with, um, which, you know, could have happened uh, one way or the other. It's not on its own enough to arouse too much suspicion there. So one of the strange things was the, the mosque that he worked at in San Diego, uh, Aribatar al-Islami, mosque is, is a pretty small unknown mosque so if you were just flying into san diego and you needed a mosque to get to uh that wouldn't have been the one uh, there, there's a much bigger main mosque there that you would have gone to so it does seem they were directed they possibly were directed to that mosque things get a bit stranger when, when alaki moves to virginia in around 2000 to take up his new job two those two hijackers move to virginia too and start attending him his, his uh sermons at Dar al-Hijra Mosque, joined by a third hijacker then. Um, th so again, that's, that has to be, again, seen as pretty suspicious. The 9-11 Commission report is uh, kind of definitely, you can see some lingering suspicion there, but they uncovered you know, all these stones they could and weren't able to come up with any direct connection there. And um, there's a couple of theories around it. I mean, possibly... If you were to push me right now, um, I, I'd say what, what happened was Alaki was never aware of the 9-11 plots. Um, that, in fact, what may have happened was... and Well, firstly, if he was aware of 9-11, of the plots happening, he was involved. 
after he goes and joins Al-Qaeda openly years later and, and is making videos for Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and all that, why not at that point take some credit for it, right? That it's, it'd be pretty cost-free cost at that point. He's already a target, you know, uh, admitting involvement in 9-11 at that point would only have given him major cre credibility. Um, and he never did. He never claimed any, any involvement. So for me, that was a big, a big reason to, to say that he didn't know anything. What may have been the case, the kind of the furthest I would speculate is that those who were handling um, Hani Hanjour and, and a couple of the other, Khalid al-Midhar and, and the third uh, hijacker who was involved with Al-Laki, who, who were handling them and sending them to America and perhaps advising them on mosques to attend and preachers to, to see, they may have been aware of Al-Laki's work and saw that there was nothing in there that was going to dissuade them from their mission. Um, he wasn't someone who was against um, the general interpretation of Islam that Al-Qaeda shares at any point. Um, he wasn't spending his time saying that jihad is something we have to be careful of and only fight very sparingly. No, he spent most of his time glorifying um, even the earlier you know, jihads of the 90s and, and 80s. Um, so he wasn't someone who was going to change their minds or mess with their uh, thinking at the time. Um, so that may, there may be something in that where someone like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed or who else who, who were handling these, these guys and sent them over may have thought, well, you know, if they're going to be attending a mosque, this guy, Al-Laki, is not going to say anything that's going to uh, change their minds. And that's about as far as I, could, I, would, I would speculate. But it is certainly, you know, it's quite a coincidence, really, isn't it? At that point, we've got two follow him across the country, you know, a third joins. Uh, he then ends up becoming a member of Al-Qaeda years later. You know, it, it is it is a strange one. There's probably a couple more components of that story that someone out there, maybe in the FBI or somewhere else, knows that may well one day someone asks the right question in a Freedom of Information Act and gets an answer back. But right now, no one knows. That's a good segue to talking about Alaki's influence overall. And one of the big things you mentioned is Inspire Magazine. Um, can you talk about that and open source jihad? Sure. Yeah, so... A big chunk of the early parts of the book are deal with the ideology, the ideological evolution, identifying him, categorizing his beliefs and better understanding them. Um, near the end, the book looks a bit more at his uh, strategic and tactical contribution as an actual operational terrorist recruiter and, and strategist. Um, and essentially, it, it gives an overview of how he and uh, his sidekick, uh, Saudi, American from Charlottesville who joined him in Yemen called Samir Khan, how they came up uh, with a kind of relatively new form of at least jihadist terrorism, if not terrorism more specifically, because actually they were inspired by probably some, some previous forms of terrorism, maybe even going back to the anarchist uh, period at the turn of the uh, uh, 20th century, but um, which will make that comment will make more sense as I go along. Um, one of the things that they realized, I think Awlaki particularly realized, was that um, the 9-11 style of attack, the, the heavily organized and financed and, and uh, complicated and high casualty, uh, big spectacle type of 9-11 attacks were, were the ideal scenario for the movement, but were becoming less and less possible, um, both because domestic security was strengthened uh, in the U.S. and in, in European countries, also, relatively successful military campaigns in Afghanistan, Pakistan border areas in Iraq were making it a lot harder to have areas where you could even plan and train for such an attack. So 
they wanted to make sure that in the way Al-Laki's job really was to keep the, the movement alive ideologically in the West, but also physically, like, as if things had to continue happening to some extent, otherwise it was going to get forgotten. So they, they thought of essentially lowering the expectations um, and, and lowering um, the, the kind of complexity of the attack so that it ends up being much more what we refer to now is probably known as lone wolf attacks. And what they were keen to do was to really encourage now people to do anything in their power uh, at their disposal uh, to commit any kind of um, attack that would, you know, ideally lead to casualties, but most importantly, probably gain attention. Um, and so we, we can call, and they refer to this as open source jihad, sort of anyone could go and access the information they needed and get go buy a knife and go and do it. The permission was there. They, they kind of gave a permanent permission to do this. Um, and what this kind of links to is what we were, what kind of people who study terrorism uh, refer to as propaganda of the deed, essentially a belief that originates with the anarchist thinkers uh, of the late uh, 1800s, um, who essentially argue that um, speeches and pamphlets and, and activism and, and, and protests certainly were effective, but the most effective way of spreading an idea was violent action. The, the propaganda of the deed itself uh, had a didactic power that any other action could not match. Um, so as long as you could continue uh, churning out some kind of, and, and, and actually in the early, uh, near the, at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century, we had a spate of assassinations of including the US president McKinley uh, by anarchist lone actor terrorists, right? We had people who were inspired by uh, people like Carlo Pisacciani and, and others, um, at, uh, anarchist thinkers, who were acting on the behalf of these beliefs on, uh, and of this movement, but on their own. And they managed to assassinate people like the U.S. president. Um, and so they kind of created a jihadist version of this where they said, go out and do this. And what it's going to do is keep us in the attention of the adversary, or the, the U.S. media and, and the population, but also keep us in the minds of possible recruits to show that we haven't gone anywhere. We're still here. The presence is not as strong, but we're still here. So they really uh, helped push a shift away from the kind of professional terrorist being the model to the amateur terrorist being the model. And, and I opened one of the chapters with a description of a, uh, an event that happened in, in central London uh, a few years ago now. Um, anyone who knows the city, uh, who, even people who've been tourists there may know Exhibition Road, which is the road where you can have the, the Natural History Museum and the Science Museum in South Kensington, a very popular, busy area. And at some point uh, a few years ago, a car uh, jumped the curb there or, or went onto the pedestrian part of the curb and, and hit a few people. And immediately um, there's headlines, there's breaking news, um, and the police even have to tweet, you know, we're not treating the event as terrorism related, right? Before any, you know, we know anything. Um, and I always thought, and that, what I've just told you, that's, that, that has, re I'm sure that's a familiar story perhaps to, to most people who've lived in big cities in the West, New York, London, Paris, you've probably had events like this where you've had, someone's had to go out and rule out terrorism even before it's been possibly discussed. And the very fact that that has to happen tells you a few things about the success of the strategy. Um, one, that the fact that we have to rule it out means that it's in our minds all the time. It's at the back of our mind. And that wasn't that didn't used to be the case. You know, I, when I, I teach students the, uh, every year, a postgrad course on terrorism. And, you know, as, as I get a, older and, and they seem to be getting younger, 
I realized that this is, you know, I have to tell them this is not how it used to be. You know, when, when someone, when someone maybe was let out of a, a mental health facility a bit prematurely and perhaps goes on a, some kind of stabbing spree or say someone jumps a curb in, in Central Park or, or rather in Times Square, it didn't used to be the case that we had to kind of rule out terrorism first and foremost, right? Now we have to do that. That's the reality we're in. And that speaks to a pretty big, I think, uh, strategic propaganda success on the part of the movement that has kind of kept itself in our minds in a way that I don't think another terrorist movement has been able to do for, for a long time and this consistently for this long and, 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 and into the future. And of course, we know ISIS have since adopted the very similar strategy for the West and, and, and also suggest similar tactics like low level stuff. Um, so that was a very important contribution as far as uh, strategically keeping the movement alive, both for adversaries and for potential recruits. And uh, another big part of it was essentially not just lowering the expectation from pro-terrorist to amateur terrorist, but lowering the bar for what it meant to even be part of the movement again. So after 9-11 and the years following 9-11, the sense was, you know, if you wanted to be a proper jihadist, you had to get up, travel as a dangerous, uh, precarious journey uh, and, and into Pakistan or some part of uh, Eastern Sub-Saharan Africa and find a terrorist group and get them to convince, you know, convince them to let you join and get a proper terrorist training. And that was really the only way you could be considered part of the movement. What Olaki did was say, actually, no, I'm going to lower the bar here for what it means to be part of the movement to something way, way more accessible. So I will make it, uh, for example, uh, someone online at home, creating propaganda, translating propaganda, that means you're part of the movement. That means that you can feel part of it in a way that perhaps in the past you didn't because it was never acknowledged officially in this way. And the hope here is a number of things. One, you extend involvement, right? You have more people get involved because not everyone's willing to take those big risks, at least not at, for someone for their first move to be, you know, uh, from supporter of jihadism to going to Pakistan is a very hardcore move that not many people are going to make. For others, you, you start with baby steps, right? You go online, you start doing propaganda, you start getting to know people, you may go to a, a protest or something. Say. So the idea here is get people in uh, at the entry level. And this is something social movements do. We call it low risk and then high risk activism. The idea being get people involved at low risk activism, stuff that's easy to do, low cost, low risk, with the hope that that enters them into a process where they then move further up the chain. And as they socialize into the group, as they get to know it better, as they get to know the ideas better, as they start thinking about it more, they then move on to more extreme forms of and high risk forms of activism. And so very cleverly, you know, Lockheed essentially created a much bigger pool of potential recruits by lowering that bar for involvement. And there are many cases, and one of which is covered in the book, of people who make this very journey from low-risk activism, endorsed and supported and promoted and encouraged by people like Alaki. Because it, was, it wasn't enough for someone to just do it. They needed to know that the big shots thought it was a big, an important thing to do. So Alaki made it very clear it is very important. So that endorsement got people involved. And then a lot of cases, they think, well, am I doing enough here? Am I just being an armchair warrior? And sometimes that pressure that's created between their online activity and their real world life creates a pressure that they can only relieve through actually doing something, uh, if, if not join, going and joining a group abroad or committing an attack. And there's many cases where you actually see that process play out. And so 
those two big contributions, the one propaganda of the deed, sort of jihadism style, and that lowering of the bar for involvement were two major strategic contributions. He and a number of, I mean, I'm not saying it's just him who made, who did this, but he was a big, big figure in those two contributions that really have, have um, I'd say, created the kind of jihadism that we have in the West today, that the Western jihad movement and how it looks and what it says and what it does is really the result of, in large part, of, of Al-Laki's ideological and strategic um, contributions. You mentioned the individuals you discuss in your case studies. They're uh, people who followed Alaki's teachings, and two had direct contact with him. And then you mentioned the third who was familiar with his beliefs from online content. And that case study of online radicalization is really interesting because much of radicalization theory is based on group identity and interaction. But you really key in on collective identity and how it can manifest in lone actors. Can you talk a little bit more about why that distinction is important of understanding lone actors and their radicalization absent that direct content, uh, contact with groups? And is Alaki's message unique or just uh, an indicator of larger trends? Yeah. Uh, so, you know, for those who study radicalization or rather the study of, of, you know, how and why people join and act on behalf of violent extremist movements, there is this, you know, ongoing discussion of, we know, particularly through the work of people like Mark Sageman, that face-to-face interaction, real-world interaction, physical groups and networks tends to be one of the most important components. Socializing yourself in that environment physically is always often considered, and rightly still considered, you know, one of the main ways that someone gets involved, that you can't just be online and this these kind of dynamics cannot be replicated in the online world. And I think there was initially a belief that that's definitely concrete. We can say there's no way the online world can replicate the physical world. But I think as things have developed, both in terms of social media and gener- you know, generations now growing up, living lives partly through social media, um, and just the you know growing evidence of particularly in, in cases in the U.S. where you haven't got really any kind of physical recruitment presence like you have in Europe for jihadist groups, you're still seeing people mobilize. The question is, is kind of becoming a bit more pressing. And, and maybe also this idea, I think, and it's kind of maybe a generational thing, and probably the younger scholars uh, who are coming up now, uh, you know, just finishing their degrees might be kind of, might be better than, than us at this because we're still looking at the world to some extent as online and then offline. Right or rather, yeah. As the, there's an online world, offline world. These are two separate spheres, and a lot of the study of radicalization and so-called online radicalization has operated on this assumption that you've got these two realms that are separate. What's kind of I think becoming clearer is that these two realms are, are you know, for younger generations, far more intertwined in ways that maybe we don't even fully understand. Um, and so I think what we're probably going to learn is there, these dynamics are able to be replayed online more, more so than we initially thought. And Alaki's contribution, I suppose, to some extent was for those he was able to directly contact through, through the Internet, that was a very important step for them in terms of making it a reality. You know, direct contact, even if it was online via email um, or, or direct messages, things, things like this. That was still a. You know, there was a couple of cases I cover in the book where they, you know, it was clear that they were kind of thinking about it, they were into it, but it was the contact with Alaki that really made it real and and kind of made them go on to the next steps. Um, 
and also, you know, the ability to communicate uh, a, a sort of transnational collective identity that you can come to identify with, you know, with, without necessarily having a huge amount of physical interaction. Um, but instead, by, you know, reading and studying what Allahki and other jihadist groups are saying about how to understand yourself, where you fit in in the world, um, where your story comes from. And so Allahki was very, you know, again, as I said, the, that history of Islam and the glory years uh, of the faith being, you know, reimagined and brought to life in, in new contexts, in, in American contexts, these things may have contributed a lot to making people feel perhaps, yes, lone actors in the strict sense that they are not physically in touch with anyone and their uh, plot is conducted alone, but they certainly feel part of a wider community that has been very effectively created and described and elucidated by people like Olaki. So he was able to make them more aware of, of a sense of collective identity that perhaps was not didn't feel accessible to them. He was able to do that through his work and through the, his ability to bring these things to life to them and use references, cultural references, political references that were very relevant to, to their lives and, and connect those things together. And so, yes, other than the framing part of the social movement theory that I look at, I look also at collective identity construction, how he defined what it was to be a Muslim in the West, how he defined, defined and maybe even more importantly, um, who who uh, Muslims should be wary of and who wasn't the right person. You're creating those boundaries, constructing them, defining them, uh, intra-social boundaries was very important. And he used standard Islamic Salafi doctrines to do this, right? He wasn't picking this out of a hat. He was taking ideas that I refer to in the book, like al wal bara which is a kind of core Salafi doctrine he would take that and then use it to uh to his own ends so it wasn't um you know he was always very effectively taking what were pretty standard ideas and doctrines and kind of reimagining them in ways to make it relevant for westerners and which essentially teaches that you should separate yourself from non-believers and their activities and their beliefs um as a muslim in order to protect your religion he used that in order to say uh to describe what um shared traits all these Muslims had that perhaps they didn't realize they had, that bent beyond race, class, culture. Uh, he was able to say that it was your faith that could bind you together, uh, despite everything else. And you mentioned earlier, Alaki was killed in 2011 in a drone strike in Yemen, but his influence continues. And we even see, even though Alaki was associated with Al-Qaeda, you talk that about his influence in the Islamic State which is kind of um, surprising given the the differences between those groups. Is it possible to counter his narratives at this point, given the way that he was killed and the continued uh, popularity of some of his messages? I mean, there've been, there have certainly been attempts to counter his messaging, but the attempts generally come from other Salafi organizations. So they're, they're, counter messages and their refutations of him are rather heavy going. Um, they're very, again, quite scholarly uh, pages and pages of sort of references to, to uh, the primary texts. And again, so they're not the kind of thing you can just throw on a YouTube video and it would work. Um, and so beyond that, what we're seeing so far is kind of fairly limited evidence about the effectiveness of so-called counter narratives, especially if they come from official bodies. So um, I'm not convinced that the uh, the whole counter-narrative idea 
um, is 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 all that effective, or at least we're not we're really not yet sure um, if it, if it's doable. Um, so there hasn't been an effective one, um, unfortunately, as far as I I can see. Um, and the the question of you know of course killing him um, created a martyr to some extent um, helped um, continue his his you know his work and his legacy. He certainly. He described how, you know, Al-Laki was very aware of the fact that Saeed Qutub's killing uh, execution in Egypt uh, was what made him an even more powerful figure. He described how Qutub's uh, words were written in his own blood as if just to kind of give a permanency and, uh, and, you know, to sort of convey what his death did to his work. So Al-Laki was certainly aware that that could help him. But, you know, he was already very popular before he died. Um and, you know, he'd already said, you know, mostly what he needed to say as far as conveying jihadism to Westerners and making it a reality and, and something accessible to them. So um, if he was still alive today, uh, what he is able to do, what, what he was able to do and would be doing if he was still alive was to continue take, you know, explaining the world through the lens of the jihad movement. So events that take place, um, for, for example, we have we have the pandemic now or or other major events that happened, he would be able to uh, give the kind of jihadist view of those events and, kind of, and, and you know, help create, you know, reactions and, and propaganda in a way that obviously he's not able to do. Um, uh, so, it, you know, in the end, it's hard to say. Certainly, it's something that it's a sticking point you know, online, you know, amongst jihadists, you still see a lot of references to his killing and how it's proof of how sort of, in, you know, unjust the U.S., system is by assassinating its own citizen without trial and all that. So um, it certainly still sticks in the in the craw uh, for, for a lot of the members of the movement. Well, Alexander, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we let you go, could you tell us what you're working on next? Sure. So actually, um, my colleagues and I at, at the Program on Extremism have another book coming out in October called Homegrown ISIS in America. That's a sort of really in-depth view and analysis um, of the ISIS presence in the U.S. and, and how it looks and, and its different um, manifestations, um, and also looks at the how it's being fought both by the FBI and uh, by sort of counter-extremism counter, uh, um, uh, policies, like what we call CVE policies, counting violent extremism, the kind of controversial attempts to, um, uh, for the state to, in one way or the other, intervene on people's radicalization pathways. So the book kind of uh, covers a lot of, diff- if you want to know about, you know, how a terrorist group can survive, even in, in a place as hostile as the U.S., you know, so, you know, as we, as I mentioned earlier, in Europe, you have long-standing historic recruitment networks that exist. In the U.S., you don't have that. Uh, you have a much it's much harder to get into the U.S. Uh, as, as a terror, as a jihadist than it is into, into European countries. Um, it's further away. So there's a lot of things that made the U.S. pretty inhospitable uh, for a foreign terrorist group to operate in. And yet ISIS found a way. So the book is a kind of more generally is an example of how terrorist groups can still find ways despite all of all the problems. So that's uh, that's out in October. Um, other than that, I'm, I'm looking more specifically at um, the kind of impact and proliferation of conspiracy theories um you know as someone who studied extremist movements uh for over a decade you know in the end that's a lot of that is actually studying the power of conspiracy theories um 
So getting more into the specifics of that is certainly something I'm looking at right now. Best of luck with your projects and thank you for being on the show today. Thanks, Beth. Uh, it's a real pleasure. Incitement, Anwar al-Awlaki's Western Jihad by Alexander Milagro Hitchens is available now from Harvard University Press. Thanks for listening to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.